Well, good morning. morning. It's great to be with you. It's it's always a privilege, an honor, a blessing to be able to gather in in God's name. But I want to just take a moment and recognize what a wonderful, what a wonderful job you were just doing singing. I don't think we talk about that enough, but the community uh, gathered in song, praising and worshiping our Savior is there. There is no replacement for that. So thank you for uh, singing. Yes, it's wonderful. Uh, As we have been on this journey together through the Gospel of John, you know, it's hard to remember, but we somebody asked me, um, one of our staff members asked me, how long have we actually been doing this? We started in January, January 31st. We started in the in uh, John chapter one, and we're now about to finish John chapter 10. All right. We spent the last three weeks. uh, This is the third of three in John chapter 10. And there is so much in here that is so deeply true and so powerful. Uh, I wish we had more time to spend just in this section, but we're going to power through this and we're going to be looking today at verses 22 to 42 in John chapter 10. But we can't do that without recognizing How did we get to this particular point? And what I mean by that is Jesus in chapter 10 already has made two really big statements. And it's all related to this metaphor that he's been using or this word picture illustration that he's been using uh, about shepherds and sheep. And so in in the first part of uh, John chapter 10, he said, I am the door for the sheep, meaning If we want to enter into God's flock, then the only way in is through Jesus. So that was that was a big that was a big deal. Then last week, we spent a lot of time talking about the second and more well-known I am statement in John chapter 10, which is I am the good shepherd. And what does it mean to have a good shepherd? What does it mean that he is the good shepherd? What does it mean for us to follow the good shepherd, truly follow the good shepherd, not just talk about it, but to actually do it. And uh, so we finished that little section up last week. And then now we're going to, this metaphor continues, but I want to point out that the timing has changed. The timing has changed, but the conflict continues to escalate between Jesus and these religious leaders. In this particular case, it's the Pharisees. He's been tangling with them for several chapters. But I, I want to I point out what now uh, has really gotten their attention. Because we, we read it last week, but we didn't spend much time about it. So I want to I just point this out. It's John chapter 10. Look at verse 17 again. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Now, here's where it gets real interesting. I have the authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. That is a really big statement. Now, I am the door for the sheep. Okay, that turns some heads. I am the good shepherd. Okay, again, people would have been paying attention because what is he really saying here? And then Jesus is going on to explain a little bit more about what that means. But when he says, I have the authority to lay down my life or lay down my life on my accord, but then he also says, and I have the authority to take it up again. Well, that is really quite 
a claim, isn't it? Because what he's saying is, I have power or authority over death itself. I have authority over death itself. Now, that's a, that's a showstopper, okay? So that, that was not just a head turner. That was a, okay, get him type of situation, okay? And so keep, keep that in mind as we continue on. We're going to be looking at verses 22 to 42. But why is it such a big claim? Well, think about this for just a moment. If, if you're these religious leaders that Jesus is talking to, and Jesus makes this claim, that he has authority over death itself. Even if these religious leaders believed in, you know, some kind of resurrection of the dead at the end of all things or, or whatever it might be, because many of them believed that there would be a resurrection that was sometime coming. Okay. But that resurrection would, would certainly be controlled by God and under God's authority alone, because God alone has the power to raise the dead. So what Jesus is saying is, is much more significant than what it might first appear, because let's face it, resurrection power shouldn't come from someone who's dead. It should come from God alone. So when he's saying, I lay down my life on my own accord, how can a dead guy be the one that then has the authority to take up his own life again. Because only God has that power. And of course, that's exactly the point. That is what he's saying. He is making a claim that is so big that this really supercharges the conflict. And so as this continues to escalate, now we're going to start in, uh, in verse 22, and we're going to talk about some of the, the context behind it so we understand maybe some of the things that, that we've been quick to skip over in the past or not paid much attention to because <laughs> we, we haven't thought that these things were important. I assure you that they are. And so instead of reading it all and then kind of going back and doing it, we're just going to step through it a little bit at a time together as we learn and, and, and pray that God will change our hearts, our lives, transform us into who he's always created us to be and, and pray for the power that only belongs to him to work in and through us so that we might grow in to who he's called us to be. Would you pray with me for a moment as we ask God to do that? Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together in your name, the name above all names. Lord, we know your name is unshaken. You are all powerful. Lord, the victory belongs alone to you. And so wherever we need to see that victory in our lives right now, Lord, would you, would you come and would you transform us? Would you plant the truth of your word in our hearts? Would you Make it come to life by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might grow into who you're calling us to be, that we might be your witnesses in every aspect of our lives, that, that everything we do might point people back to you. Lord, we give you this time. We ask that it's your word that is proclaimed here, not my words, but your word alone, because we know it has the power to change everything. Lord, may you open our ears so that we can hear the truth 
of who you are and who we are in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you have your Bible, you can go through this. We'll do a little bit at a time, but John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. Uh, it will also be on the screen as well, so feel free to follow along uh, there. But I, I just, again, there are these little details that, that go by pretty quick, and sometimes they're just, you know, interesting little passing details uh, that we might not think much of. But other times... John is telling us something by giving us these little details that we might not pay that much attention to. And one of those cases happens right here in verse 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. Okay, two really important little details that we don't want to miss. The first is that what's this reference to the festival of dedication? What does that mean? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. But there's also a time change here, because remember, all the way back, starting in chapter seven, we started talking about this, this feast of tabernacles that Jesus, he showed up in the middle of the feast of tabernacles. He reoriented and repurposed the entire festival at the, at the height of the celebration. He basically busts in and says, hey, it's really all about me. I don't know if he didn't get the memo on how, how to be a good party guest or something like that, but, but clearly he interrupted or, or disrupted and proclaimed something massively true, yes, but very offensive to all the people that were gathered there. Well, now just between verses 21 and 22, there's this two months of time that has passed, even though it's one verse to the next in our Bible. And so we're no longer talking about the context of the Festival of Tabernacles anymore. Now there's something here. Uh, the Festival of Tabernacles happened in the fall. It was a harvest festival. It was probably around October time frame. But now it says winter. Okay, winter. Oh, that's too, fast forward for two months. Jesus is back in Jerusalem and he's at another festival. This festival probably doesn't sound familiar to us. Festival of, of dedication. What, what in the world does that mean? Well, if you go back and you look uh, in the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures and you, you search through and you try to find some kind of reference to the festival of dedication, I'm going to save you the trouble. I know you were going to do it, but uh, it's not there. It's not there. It was something that was added later, much later, something that was added as a celebration, as a commemoration of an event that occurred. And what that was, was in about the year 167, these foreign invaders led by this, this guy named uh, Epiphanes, they came in and they took over Jerusalem. And more specifically, they took over the holiest place of all, the temple in Jerusalem, the, the temple of the Lord. They moved in, they put up their own uh, pagan shrines, uh, pagan altars. They made all kinds of abhorrent sacrifices. They desecrated the temple. They defiled the temple. And this went on, and about three years into it, there was a group, small group, relatively speaking, of Jewish people that said, enough is enough. You may have heard of these folks. They're the Maccabees. And so you might have heard of the Maccabean revolt. Now, maybe you don't know all the names, but you probably have heard of either Simon Maccabee or Judas Maccabee, because they're typically the, the most recognized. But, but they led this successful revolt to remove or boot out the foreigners from the temple. 
not just the temple and not just Jerusalem, but drove them eventually out of the entire area. And so there was a lot of cause for celebration. Obviously, these people were received as the biggest heroes you could possibly imagine. The, the, the biggest uh, heroes, e even kings, you might say, they were received as kings because they had done what the people of Israel were waiting for, right? Because think about, we, we've talked about several times there was this ongoing promise that God had made that someday there would be this promised one who would come and restore Israel. Now, maybe not in the way that the people were expecting, but they thought this was a really good start, right? Matter of fact, they even called Simon and his descendants from that point on, they referred to him as leader and high priest until the true prophet comes. Leader and high priests until the true prophet comes. And so this part of this dedication or this rededication of the temple, the celebration included lighting this famous golden menorah in the temple. But they only had enough oil to burn it for one day. And somehow, miraculously, that little bit of oil lasted for eight days. Okay? And so there was part of the celebration dedicated to this, this lighting of the menorah. So the festival is also called the Festival of Light, which might still not sound familiar to us, but it's also referred to as Hanukkah. This is Hanukkah. This is where Hanukkah came from. It's the recognition and the celebration of this rededication of the temple. Okay, so that is the feast that Jesus is now almost 200 years later. That is the feast where Jesus is now walking in Solomon's colonnade. Okay, that's the backdrop of what's happening here. So we fast forwarded a couple months. We're at this particular festival, Hanukkah, festival of light, festival of dedication. And again, there were all of, because of the cause of that celebration and what they are remembering, there clearly is this sort of messianic atmosphere because the people are again reminded that, that someday a true prophet or the true Messiah is going to arrive. So that's the background where we enter this now, uh, continuing on, well, let's see. Let's go uh, to verse 24. So while Jesus is out walking, here we go, verse 24. The Jews who were there gathered around him, they were saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. So again, you see that there's this messianic overtone. The people are wondering about this. They've, they've heard things that he said. And either they've seen things that he's done or they've heard about them, certainly, because the word was definitely spreading. And so this conflict was all kind of coming to a head. And so, well, maybe in verse 24, when they ask him, hey, just tell us plainly. If you're in the Messiah, just tell us plainly. Maybe it's because they're curious. Maybe they're really trying to say, okay, we just need to know. We've seen these signs. We've seen the things you've been doing. Uh, we have questions about this. We're curious about your true identity. Maybe that's, maybe that's what it is. After all, 
The prophet Isaiah in chapter 35 had talked a lot about these things that when the Messiah comes, uh, well, let's just hear it for ourselves. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5 and 6. This is the, when the Messiah comes. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Well, when we think about all the things we've heard about, talked about, studied, and learned together about what Jesus has done, any of this start to sound familiar? Chapter 9, he opened the eyes of a blind man, a guy that had been blind since birth. He opened his eyes. Guy has sight. If you remember back to chapter 5, Jesus healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. Remember that? Take up your mat and walk. Boom, the guy is healed. And even going back to chapter 4, Jesus met this woman in the wilderness of Samaria at a well and gives her or offers her living water. Again, streams of water out in the desert where the land is so dry and parched, here comes Jesus offering living water. So we see maybe there's a reason that they're curious. Maybe they're kind of putting the pieces of the puzzle together and saying, well, could, could this really be the Messiah? But I think there's also another explanation because the way that the Greek is actually written with the language here, it says they gathered around Jesus, but it really has a little bit more of a negative connotation, almost like, well, they surrounded Jesus. Okay. They surrounded Jesus. And when you think of being surrounded I hope that implies to you that it may not be for good reasons, may not be with the best of intentions. And so the question might just be that they want him to say something so directly that they can then move in and arrest him on the spot because this guy's got to go. So I think it's more likely they've already made up their mind on who they think Jesus is and who they think he isn't. Remember, after he made this claim about having authority to take up his own life, there was a lot of division over that. And some people said, all right, he's either crazy or he's demon-possessed. But then other people said, well, but, you know, can, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So there might be that level of curiosity, but I think it's more likely they've said, all right, we've seen this guy do things. We don't know how he's doing them. We don't know why he's doing them, but we don't like that he's doing them. We need to, above all, we need him to stop saying these crazy things because people are getting more and more confused. And so we, gotta, we have to put a stop to it. And so maybe, and probably more likely, their question, just tell us plainly, is they trying to draw something out of him so that they can accuse him and arrest him on the spot. But Jesus, of course, being Jesus, doesn't fall for it. Uh, look at verse 25. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me but you do not believe, here it is, because you are not my sheep. Now, I think we have to just pause for a moment and think about the ramifications of that statement. 
because it's not just something that these particular folks he was arguing with should consider. It's something we very much should consider right now because Jesus makes all kinds of claims. He's making this claim to you right now in this place, in this moment, that he has the authority over death itself. He has power over death itself. And when we hear that, we think it sounds completely absurd, don't we? They did. Don't we? It's okay. We don't have to try to fake it. It sounds insane. And yet, that's the claim that Jesus makes, that he has the authority. But he's saying that they don't hear it because they're not his sheep. Okay. We talked about last week, what does it mean to be led by the good shepherd? What does it mean to be a sheep in God's flock? And what it means is not just saying it, but it actually means living it. Because we can say whatever we want, it doesn't mean anything. But if we believe it, if we really truly know and understand and trust that Jesus is our good shepherd, well, things in our lives change. They have to change. Whatever we think we've got going is disrupted by the power of the gospel that gets into our lives and transforms who we are. Everything is different. But if we're not interested in whatever that is, then we will choose instead to plug our ears, to plug our ears with whatever we can find so that we don't hear the truth about what Jesus is really saying. So it's not so much that they can't hear the words that he's saying. It's that they don't want to hear the truth of what he's saying. Because the truth of what he's saying will disrupt everything that they have going. It'll disrupt all the systems of the world. It will disrupt all the things they have figured out. And they are not interested in that. And so I, I guess I would say it to you this way. Sometimes we can't hear. But many times we won't hear. Sometimes we can't hear, but many times we won't hear. Because we just simply refuse to hear because we don't want to deal with the consequences of what does it mean to accept that as truth? I'll give you an example. All right. So I go to the doctor for my physical, right? Such a fun time. And the doctor says, well, everything looks pretty good, but you need to lose some weight. All right. I know what that means. Okay. I know what that means. Fast forward a year, I go back to the doctor, I walk in the doctor's office, and he says, well, what happened? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I thought, I thought we said you needed to lose weight. Now, I could say at that moment, oh, I, well, I didn't really hear you. Could, could you. could you say it in a different way so that I could really understand what you mean by this? Because the way you said it before was very confusing. I mean, what exactly do you mean by that? And then the doctor says, Bob, you are too fat. <laughs> okay. So a lot of times it's not that we're confused or, or we can't hear. It's that we don't want to hear because we know when we hear and when we believe and when we accept the truth 
then it means things have to change. So we pretend, oh, I, I, didn't, I didn't understand, I can't hear. That's a lot of what's going on here. Because these people have seen and or heard over and over again these amazing things that Jesus has been doing, how he's been explaining those things, and how all of the works he has been doing have been pointing to the reality that he keeps telling people of who he is. The one who has been sent, the savior of the world, the one by whom all who call upon his name will be saved. That's who this Jesus is, but they don't want to hear it. Look at verse 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So when you think about what that might mean for you today, here, now, maybe it's the first time you've ever considered that this Jesus, this good shepherd who continues to call out to you, maybe today is the day that you say, hey, I believe, I want to follow, I want to know more about what it means to have a good shepherd, to have a great shepherd. Maybe that's you today. Or maybe today is the first time in a long time that it's time to come back into the fold. It's time to come back and say, Jesus, I have really wandered off. But know this, the circumstances, the struggles, the challenges, the things that we face in this world continue and will continue to try to plug our ears and compete for our attention and refocus us on different things going different directions, all of which lead us away from Jesus instead of to him. And at the very same time, Jesus says, if you are one of my sheep, then nothing, no matter what you face, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've left undone, nothing and no one can snatch you out of his hand. That is an amazing promise. Because it means that even when we don't have the strength to hold on to Jesus, that the promise is that he will not lose his grip on us. We are his sheep and no one can snatch us out of his hand. And, and he actually goes so far as to double down on this. If we didn't hear it the first time, he says it again. Listen to the way he says this. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. You know what that means? It means the full strength, the full power, the full authority of a God who created all that exists, including you, holds you in his hands. That is amazing. No matter what we face, God has a grip that cannot be broken and he claims us as his very own. Will, will you come into his fold? Will you listen to the voice of the good shepherd as he continues to call and draw people in to his flock? Is that you today? Now, 
you might be wondering, well, okay, how can Jesus get away with making a claim like this? Talking about authority over life, authority, but what, what do you, what do you, authority over death, sounds insane, all that kind of stuff, sounds unbelievable. Uh, the world says, eh, that, that just a bunch of made up fairy tale type stuff. Okay, well, for these particular Jewish leaders, religious leaders that he was tangling with at this particular moment, he then says it as plainly as you can possibly imagine. Look at what he says in verse 30. I and the Father are one. That's like a mic drop moment. I and the Father are one. He's saying that he and the Father are of the same essence. He's saying that he is God in the flesh, right there in front of them. The reason he has the authority to not only lay down his life, we have authority for that, but he has authority to take it up again. Okay, well, taking it up again means that is getting into God's territory. Jesus now says out loud, I and the Father are one. It's part of this divine mystery that you and I will never be able to fully comprehend, but we know and believe and trust that we have one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is saying, I am of the same essence of God, meaning he's God in the flesh, which is exactly what John told us at the beginning of his gospel. Remember, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And then a little bit later, and the Word took on flesh and came and dwelt amongst us. But his own people didn't receive him. The world rejected him. And yet he came anyway, knowing that this would happen. He came anyway. He came for you and for me with the authority over death itself. That is a big claim. And of course, it comes with a big response. Look at how the Jewish leaders respond. In verse 31, again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. Do you see the contrast between what we just got done saying about what Jesus is doing with his hands? What's he doing with his hands? He's holding on to you. He's holding on to you and never letting you go. And in response to that claim, what do the hands of the world do? They pick up stones. They pick up stones. Now, maybe that sounds far removed because we might not have a lot of experience with that kind of thing, but I assure you that we are very quick to pick up stones ourselves. May not be physical stones, may not be to physically stone somebody, but we are stoning one another all the time, aren't we? This world is being ripped apart by division, strife. And it's not just happening in the world that is being directed at Christians, although that's the story we like to tell ourselves a lot of the time, but how many stones are being thrown inside the church itself, inside the flock of God. Forget about going out and tangling with the world. What do we do about the stone throwing inside of our church? Now, I'm not talking about this particular church. I don't really, I'm just saying in, in a general sense, Christians, people all over the place that refer to them 
ourselves as Christians spend an awful lot of time throwing stones at one another. But here's the good news. No matter where these stones come from, no matter who throws them at us, we are safe in Jesus' hands, even as the world picks up stones. That's amazing. We're safe in Jesus' hands, even as the world picks up stones. Now, when we hear that, when our ears are unplugged because we've taken out our earplugs, whatever we've stuffed in there refusing to hear, when we trust that and when we know that, then we enter this life that only Jesus can provide because he gives us this new life. Not that we have earned it or deserve it, but because of his grace and his mercy, he calls us into this new life because he has the authority to raise us to new life now. Not after we die, but now that will last forever, for an eternity. Well, after they pick up stones to stone him, I think it's always fun when Jesus leads people into a big old bear trap. Uh, yeah, it's fun. Uh, I actually think it's fun even when Jesus does this to me. I don't think it's fun when it's happening, but afterwards when I can look back and see, you know, cause I, there's a lot of times where I'm like, Oh, I'm so certain about this. Oh, I'm so, you know, I, again, pick up my own stones and think I've got all the right answers. And then along comes Jesus and says, mm, not so fast. And I find myself being really angry. <laughs> and yet at the same time, after it's all over, I find myself being amazed, thankful, grateful, and transformed. Because wow, we have a great God who loves us enough not to leave us that way, but to continue to come to us and invite us back home into his flock. So Jesus lays out this uh, great trap, I think, starting in verse 32. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the father. For which of these do you stone me? It's awesome. We are not stoning you for any good work. I mean, this sounds like more like... <laughs> We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Okay, well, now we're getting somewhere. They are trying to condemn him for making this claim. He said, I and the Father are one, or I am God's son. He says it a lot of different ways. They don't like any of the ways he said it. And so, interestingly enough, uh, Jesus said, goes on and says, is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. What about the one whom the father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Now that that's like a, okay, what in the world is he talking about? That's a, that's a moment where they now have some time to think about what they've just said, what they're doing. They probably still have the stones in their hand. They're pro it's probably like the GPS recalculating. They're trying to figure out, uh, what, what, wait a minute, what, what is he talking about? What, what, what does he mean by this? And it's a reference back to this not very well-known psalm, 
honestly, it's Psalm 82. Psalm 82, it's not one of David's Psalms, it's Asaph or somebody like that. Uh, Psalm 82, he, re- he, he quotes that as a means to tell them your argument is invalid. And why is it invalid? Well, look at verses six and seven of Psalm 82. I said, you are gods, you are all sons of the most high, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Now, what, what is this in reference to? Well, these, this reference is to these people that were the judges of Israel. They were the judges of Israel. They were people that were put in positions of power to serve and act on God's behalf. And so they spoke with the authority of God. And if there was a disagreement, if there were, you know, whatever it might be, if people needed to come before a judge, they were judged, not just based on whatever, well, whatever, they were judged by people who God put in place to be his representatives, to exercise justice on his behalf, to speak on God's behalf. So the argument Jesus is making is, well, you're fine with the judges of Israel being called gods. You have no problem with that. And since scripture cannot be broken, why are you going to stone me for saying what you accept about other people? What, what am I claiming that is inappropriate? Well, that's an int- that's like a puzzle. That's like a little bit of, I think it may be just a little bit of a delay tactic to, to buy a little bit of time because we don't really know uh, what his intent was in that particular case, but we know that, that it allowed for enough time for him to get away. Okay, we'll get to that in just a second. I think it's, it's deeper than what we might realize because this, this statement that he makes, that Jesus makes about, hey, Look at the things I've done. Look at the things. If you don't want to believe what I've said, then consider the things that I've done. Uh, Matter of fact, he goes on in, in verse 37 to say, do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Now that touches on exactly what we spent a lot of time talking about last week, which is we can say all we want. Oh yes, I believe. Count me in. I am a sheep in God's fold. Yes, we can say it. But if our lives do not reflect any of that truth, then are we really his sheep? That's what Jesus is really getting at here. Are we really his sheep? I find that very convicting. I find it very convicting to consider how much of my life I spend living in the kingdom of me, trying to do it my way, trying to get my way versus the kingdom of God, which Jesus continues to call us into. What what does that mean for you in terms of, of your life? And so he's saying, hey, I've already more than proven this as I continue to prove this. And if you don't believe the words I'm saying, Believe the works that I'm doing, because as we've said all along, the works and the miracles and the signs, whatever you want to call them, what he's doing is designed not just to be a means to an end in itself. It's not an end in itself. They're always designed to point people to the truth about him and to bring God glory. Is that how we live our lives? 
to point people to Jesus and to bring glory to God. Is that how we live our lives? What are we doing with our hands? What are we doing with our hands? Are we pointing people to Jesus? Are we loving people the way that Jesus asks us and calls us to? Or are we picking up stones in whatever way we can find them, however we can do it? Because we don't want to deal with the truth because we know if we believe and accept the truth, then things will have to change. And so at the very same time, we can confidently say, it's not our works that earn God's favor. It's not what we do that makes God gracious toward us. He is gracious toward us. He did send his son for us, for our benefit. But our works do actually reveal something. When we consider our lives, our works don't save us, but they do reveal who we belong to. Our works don't save us, but they do reveal who we belong to. And so in your life, when you think about the fruit of your life, who are you pointing people to? Who do your actions point to? Who or what do they point to? Is the grace of God that is so abundant? Again, God has given us grace upon grace. Is that abundant grace spilling out of us and blessing other people? Or are we trying to somehow bottle it up and keep it for ourselves? Well, as you can imagine, after they're kind of dismayed about what is he talking about? What, what exactly is happening? They've maybe even forgotten. They've got the stones in their hands for just a moment. And in verse 39, it says, again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. It's not grasp is not really the right word. He escaped their hands is really a more appropriate translation. They escaped, he escaped their hands. So when they finally realize, oh, what's he talking about? Oh, wait a minute. We got to get him. They reach for him at that point, not to embrace him or to love him, but to capture him, arrest him, and eventually eliminate him. You see that contrast? Where do you fall in your life? What are you doing with your hands? Eventually, Jesus will be crucified. We haven't got to that yet, but he eventually will not escape their grasp, and it will be just like he said he will willingly hand himself over. And he will do that to protect his sheep. When we eventually get there in, in John 18, when the, the Roman soldiers come to get Jesus, Jesus is the one who volunteers himself. He's the one who comes out and steps out and says, I'm the one you're looking for so that he can protect his flock. That's the savior that we have. And this is who has been promised all along, all the way back from the beginning of John chapter one. And to return that, just to return to that for just a moment, I want you to remember John the witness, or sometimes uh, he's called John the Baptist, but we called him John the witness because anybody remember what he did? He, he wore uh, clothes made out of, camel hair. He ate honey and locusts out in the wilderness. And uh, he was a wiry old weirdo guy. Uh, what did he do? 
took his big bony finger out in the middle of the wilderness and pointed to Jesus and said, what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is what we see and continue to see happening with Jesus as we learn and trust more and more about his identity and the claims that he's making about himself. And so in some ways, the end of chapter 10 is the bookend for what we started hearing about all the way back in chapter 1. Look at verse 40. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. And so I ask you that today. I don't want you to answer that right this second. I want you to think about it during this week upcoming in the interactions you have with other people and how you are being asked to do this, that, or the other, the opportunities that God gives you, the people that God puts in your life. Ask yourself who or what are you pointing people to? Who or what are you pointing people to? I hope and pray that it's Jesus. I hope it's Jesus. Because this Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. This Jesus is the one who has the authority that he claims to have. He did willingly give his life as a ransom for many, for our sin, not for his benefit, but for our benefit. And he was crucified on a Roman cross with the sin of the world upon him so that he could once and for all end it and give us a chance, the opportunity to follow him into this new life that only he can offer. And just like he said, he had the authority to not stay dead. Amazing. He was raised again. And now he comes to you right here, right now and offers you that new life. Will you follow him? And if you already are a follower of his, will you point others in this world that he loves so much to know the truth about who he is, what he's done, and the claims that he's made to grab hold of you so much so with the full strength, power, and authority of God that he will never, ever let you go. I pray that you know that truth, and I pray that you will lead others into it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you don't leave us abandoned or orphaned, but instead... You call us by our name. You know how many hairs we have on our head. Lord, we surrender to you, knowing that you are our true and only hope. Forgive us for the ways that 
we have wandered off, tried to look for hope in something else, some other place. Lord, may we find our hope and our life in you alone. Thank you for how you continue to protect us, provide for us. Thank you for the confidence that you give us to walk these next steps of our faith covered in your mercy and grace. Help us to be the light that shines that grace outward into this world that you love so much. Thank you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.